This is Pete Moore on Halo Talks NYC. I have the pleasure of having an old friend of mine, Rob Fioretti, coming in from Paladin Retail Equity Partners. We're going to talk about growth equity. We're going to talk about post-pandemic, and we're going to talk about what it's like to partner up with a institutional investor. So, Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Pete. Appreciate it. So you've had a um, an interesting career from uh, you know moving around to a couple of different consumer focused groups. So maybe talk through kind of your personal trajectory and and some of the uh, the deals that you felt um, you know wow we kind of helped this company get from A to B. Yep. So happy to do that. And I'll make it quick, not to bore anybody. But I've been in and around the private equity space in general for more than 25 years now. Wow, that make me, makes me sound old. Um, but for the last decade plus, uh, I've been focused on the consumer sector specifically. I did start out my career uh, more in a more operationally focused role, working with private equity firm portfolio companies, establishing post-acquisition strategies, so I do have uh, a lot of experience on the operating side, um, but for the last really 20 years, I've been focused on the investing side, most of that in the consumer sector specifically. Cool. So when you take a look at these consumer companies and, um, you know, there used to be, I'd say, more competitive barriers around businesses. Um, so how do you think about, you know, that the technology changes and you know, maybe new competitors popping up on the consumer side as you think about investment theses going forward? Yeah, look, it um, it makes it very interesting from our perspective because, you know, the barriers to starting, a, you know, somebody putting up a website and all of a sudden having a company are very low these days. And so when we're evaluating opportunities, we're certainly – um, aware of that. Uh, we make sure that the companies we're partnering with are, you know, more established. They're not going to, you know, go away tomorrow that they've established uh, a brand uh, with a moat around it or something proprietary, whether it's IP based uh, or otherwise, uh, that provides them with, um, you know, a defensible position. Uh, and it's not going to, you know, be overtaken by the next guy to come along. So when someone partners up with, with your firm now, um, what are some of the key areas that you guys dig into? Or maybe like right before the acquisition closes, you say, look, here's a hundred day plan. And here's, you know, what we can throw either our brains behind our relationships behind maybe some muscle, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Yep. How do you guys think about like, hey, look, how do we make a first hit impression here? So we spend most, if not all of our time partnering with founders or founder groups who have uh, established very impressive companies. Uh, they built them um, into, you know, sizable entities, but are looking for uh, partners to bring in not only for capital, um, but frankly, for much more than that. Somebody who can help them uh, professionalize the organization, institutionalize it, help them take it to the next level. Every company in our portfolio today was actually a founder-owned business um, where we went in, partnered with 
that group or that individual um, brought capital to the table, but also brought relationships, resources, our own expertise um, to help them continue to grow the companies. We tend to do, we tend to like to partner with founders for a couple, well, they tend to like to partner with us because of a lot of the operational expertise that we have and operational experience we have. We've been on their side of the table. Uh, and as a result, when things happen and things always happen, um, we are constructive. We don't panic. Um, we can help them deal with the situation, uh, whether it's an opportunity or something that we need to, uh, you know, a problem that needs to be addressed. So when you take, you know, some private equity firms will say, look, you know, we're a consumer fund. We wait for companies that want to sell and it's an auction process and, and maybe we have some kind of unique angle uh, or, hey, we just want to put money to work and we're willing to pay the highest price. So, you know, we'll play that game. Um, you know, what do you think is a differentiator and how much more work is it to find the right deals when you're, you know, trying to go direct to an entrepreneur and also to follow on to that, you know, an entrepreneur typically hasn't done a transaction the size that, that you're talking about. It's probably the largest transaction he or she have done financially. So do you view that as an opportunity to educate? Do you view that as, um, maybe there's more seller's remorse uh, before you get involved. So maybe give us the, the how, how things kind of evolve. Yeah, no, great, great question. Um, and a lot of the time, you're exactly right. I know you deal with a lot of founders and entrepreneurs yourself. So you're facing these same types of challenges, uh, but we see it as an education process. You know, in general, we, know the companies we invest in oftentimes for a long time before we actually make that investment. We've, you know, followed, you know, we follow the sectors we invest in for years uh, before we actually make an investment. And we spend lots of time. And it's one of the things that's been, that's made investing during this pandemic challenging for us. We spend lots of time with the entrepreneurs or founders making sure they're comfortable, making sure they understand the process. We actually prefer when advisors like you guys are, uh, are, involved, are involved because it ensures that they're well, that they're well advised and that they're well educated and they feel like they, um, they have the proper context in order to make a proper decision. So, uh, but we spend an awful lot of time making sure they understand, you know, all aspects of the transaction. The last thing we want, because in general, we're always going into these deals with the intent of partnering with these founders, uh, that they're going to continue to be involved. And the last thing we want or need is for them to be surprised or disappointed by something uh, along the way. The, our transactions generally involve a fairly significant rollover uh, by that founder, by that entrepreneur, mm -hmm. rollover of their uh, of their equity into our deal, and so interests tend to be very well aligned going forward. Uh, but one of and you mentioned this, one of the keys to that is ensuring that our vision for where the company is headed are aligned as well. So we spend a lot of time talking about you know where have you brought this company so far? Where do you see it headed? What are the opportunities? 
whether it's organic, whether they're M&A, how can we help in um, reaching those or uh, achieving those opportunities? Um, you know, how are we going to get there? Gotcha. That's a great summary. When you think about some of the benefits of an entrepreneur partnering with your firm or, or any private equity firm, you know, we talk about one, you're diversifying your risk. So you've got some money off the table, which, you know, at some age is a prudent thing to do. The second is you don't have to sign any more personal guarantees on the SBA loans or whatever other financings you're taking out. You don't have a personal guarantee on leases. So maybe talk for a minute and maybe I stole some of the thunder there, but you know, talk about like all the benefits of, of working with your capital versus working with my own capital. Yeah, look, there's no question that it's a diversification of your wealth, of your risk. Um, you know, you don't have to personally sign up to things that you would otherwise be signing up for. Um, you know, we, you know, one of the things we, we know how to do a lot of things. One of the things we know well is how to finance things as effectively as we can. So whereas you might have been financing things exclusively with equity uh, capital, uh, we might be able to come in and do it somewhat differently. You know, the car wash business we're invested in is a perfect example where, you know, they had been growing it using their own capital. Previously, um, we've brought in um, REITs and other real estate firms to help us do this in a very capital efficient, capital efficient way. And frankly, it's been eye-opening um, to the founders we've partnered with uh, who have been wondering why they hadn't figured this out uh, prior to our involvement. That happens, uh, that happens a lot. The other thing I would say about, you know, partnering, you know, what we find is that many of these founders and entrepreneurs, they, you know, they might have teams around them, but they don't always do a great job surrounding themselves with people that they can talk to, that they can bounce ideas off of. Uh, and it's, it's a low, it can be very lonely for them in a lot of ways. And they spend a lot of times, you know, talking to themselves uh, and evaluating decisions by themselves. And what we tend to find, and we find this even during the initial conversations in our, in our diligence, because we tend to run very conversational type diligence processes, we find that the, that these entrepreneurs a, enjoy those conversations, enjoy those sessions, and B, find them really interesting and insightful uh, because mm -hmm. there are perspectives um, that are discussed or um, opinions that are uh, expressed that they just hadn't thought of before because people are coming at from it from a different angle. And it's, you know, we bring our own experiences, our own uh, expertise to bear, but we're also making introductions to individuals, firms, and, and other resources that make sense based on where we see the opportunities for the company. Uh, just so um, our audience understands, how many deals do you evaluate a year and how many actual investments do you make? So, this year could be a particularly active year. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but the deal flow out there right now is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, we, you know, we see 
I mean, hundred pro- probably close to a thousand deals a year come in, come in over the transom. We can't possibly pay attention to most of them, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wind up doing two or three new platforms. Uh, we also will do add-ons, add-on ac- acquisitions to a number of our portfolio companies, and we can do anywhere from, you know, it depends, two to five of those uh, per year. Um, and so we do see lots and lots of opportunities. Most of what we see, you know, gets, you know, pretty uh, thrown out pretty quickly. Um, but we'll spend time on probably, you know, we'll spend a good amount of time on 10 to maybe, maybe 15 a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, we'll do two, two-ish plus or minus um, invest platform investments every year. Got it. I just wanted to make sure we had a audio footnote that when a private equity firm says, no, you're not alone, no. that they, they can only do a certain amount of deals a year. And, you know, assume that if we send a book out to 50 groups, you know, if we get two, that's, that's good. You know, like we're kind of in the average, right? So I think people need to understand that the business of raising capital is usually respectful declines and a, and a couple of hits. So if we could use yeah, this to, look, to the, reiterate you know, that. The ones, and a lot of the deals that we'll say no to, you bring up an interesting point. It's not necessarily because they're bad deals. And as a matter of fact, it might be because they're almost too good. We tend to spend our time on companies and situations where we think we can be helpful, where we think, you know, by virtue of our experience, by virtue of our relationships, our expertise, we can bring something to the table, do something with the company that the next guy can't, because there's lots of guys with money. um, And, you know, for us to just purely overpay, uh, you know, based on, you know, based on not much doesn't make sense for us. We're going to excel where we're getting involved in situations where um, we can do more than the next guy um, with that particular company and with that particular uh, management team. Got it. So let me ask you a question because someone asked me this the other day. They said, how are these venture capital groups valuing these companies at exorbitant valuations? And then you've got Pete, what you're telling me, there's like this traditional group that still uses multiples of EBITDA and, you know, looks at financial models with moderate assumptions, but they're all kind of playing on the same chessboard or checkers board, if you will. So I've got in the fitness industry, I've got groups that are, might have like a couple million dollars in revenue and somehow they're valued at a hundred million. And I got a $20 million EBITDA business that I might get five times for. So like, so talk about how you feel as an investor kind of playing in this game where you've got rational operators, you've got irrational money, you've got valuations that you've been, you've grown up. You probably wake up, be like, that's six times EBITDA company. That's seven times. Like that's not a nine or 10 or 20 or five times revenue. So how do you think about it? Do you feel like maybe, Oh, these people come around, they got better ideas or better ways to value these companies on behind or like, Hey, principles of finance are going to apply here. Right. Got it. It's a great question. And by the way, it's one I find myself asking often when I see some of the stuff going on. So uh, I definitely don't have all the answers, but the way, you know, we approach it, 
is that, look, valuation is based on the prospects for that particular company in the future. Uh, it's not necessarily based on what it's doing today. Yes, we talk about multiples because that is a convenient way for us to compare opportunities and compare values across businesses and across industries. But um, the, the value of a firm today is based on its prospects in the future. And so, you know, a company that might not have, you know, a lot of earnings today, but has uh, a very defensible um, business model, a unique proposition operating in a very large market, if you could envision where that company could be in three to five years, although it might have no earnings today, it might be have the potential to be worth a billion dollars in five years. And so that would imply that the value today um, might be some crazy multiple of revenue because there are no earnings to uh, apply a multiple to. In contrast, you having you know what might be a more mature company that does have earnings today, um, it has a pretty good competitive position, but it might be in a in a business where you know the opportunity just isn't quite as great, and so um, the value today, based on where that opportunity is in the future, um, might be less than a company that's got no profits today but has a much bigger opportunity. That's I think where people lose sight of how to, you know, why is Tesla value? Well, I, I don't know that it is in the last couple of days, but it was valued more than the other car companies. Well, it was like, se it was like seven, around, right? Yeah, it was like seven times 2025 estimated yeah. revenue. I, I think it's, I think it's taken a little bit of a hit in these last few days, but you get the point. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the things that, um, that I kind of scratch my head about on these VC deals is even like when a company brings in capital it's worth like 250 million but it has like 50 million of revenue somewhere in the back of my mind it's like this company's priced to win it's not priced to place it's priced as if there is no competition or like that this one's the ultimate winner but there's a there's a roulette game you know or uh you know what i what they call that like uh you know regression uh, analysis what am i thinking about i'm thinking about um Monte Carlo. Yes. There's a Monte Carlo, like this company, yeah, Peloton. They might be awesome. And I love done. I got a lot of people to couch and on a bike that meets our mission. But at the end of the day, you know, I watch cable TV and I got a Nordic track commercial. Then I got a Bowflex. Then I got a Peloton. Then I got an Apple TV. I mean, it's not, they're not the only group out there. So do you think maybe some of the VC hysteria has priced everything to win versus to place? Uh, look, a lot of that is, and that's when you get in markets that are arguably uh, inflated. And I think we're in one of those today. Um, everything is priced like it will be the only winner. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, I think VCs are, you know, the way their business model works, and we're a little bit different than that. Um, but VCs, you know, their portfolio works if they have two big winners and, you know, 10 losers. That's okay. Right. And so they can price things so that, you know, they may hit the one or two big winners in a space and they're okay if they miss with the other 10. Yeah. So switching topics here for a minute, obviously we've been through 
you know, Armageddon for the last year, especially you guys own a pure bar franchisee. So you, you've been in it with us with the shutdowns. You know, one of the, we had an, an entrepreneur come to us and they said, Hey, I'm talking to this private equity group. You know, what questions should I ask? I said, well, the first thing you got to do is like, how did they work with their portfolio companies during, you know, the, the, this last 11 months and then fact checked out with the guys that or the women that are CEOs of those companies, because I feel like there's been so much marketing. I went on a soapbox the other day about this, but let me share a little of the highlights. You know, there's all these groups out there that say I'm flexible capital. I'm going to be here for the long run. And then you are for the first 90 days and then you're not getting your interest payment and you're not that flexible financial provider partner anymore. So how have you guys treated your deals like looking at the long game and then also thinking about the brand equity that you have as a firm and that you and your partners have individual credibility and, and how that calibrates into how you operate. Yeah. <clears throat> it's a great question. And I think that your advice is exactly uh, the right advice, which is for, for entrepreneurs which is go in and ask them how they work with their portfolio companies, but probably more important, go talk to the people that they've worked with. Uh, and to that end, you know, we spend a lot of time upfront um, with these founders, with these entrepreneurs, with these management teams, developing a relationship so that, you know, our fourth bo first board meeting, we're not just sitting down for the first time, getting to know each other and deciding, okay, now what? It isn't like that. We already know what we're doing at that first board meeting or whatever it is, um, because we've spent that time, A, getting to know each other, talking about, you know, who does what, what we're going to bring to the table, how are we going to be involved, what decisions do we want to be a part of, but what decisions are we, you know, are the management teams. Uh, having that understanding up front and spending that time, and that has been more difficult uh, during this past year, for sure. You just, I mean, in my opinion, it just, Zooms just don't cut it uh, in that regard. But spending that time is critical. And then, you know, what you'll, and this, it takes a long time to develop, to develop this sort of reputation. But when, you know, founders that you're just meeting, you're just developing a relationship, when they make that call that you have suggested that they make, Pete, uh, and talk to the people we've worked with in the past, they're going to hear that. They're going to hear that, you know, there were no surprises, that sure, things happen along the way and that we didn't, that nobody foresaw. Uh, but we sit down and we figure out how to deal with that. And um, having that reputation for a long time um, is, is invaluable, uh, and something that, um, I think gets overlooked, frankly. Yeah. Agreed. So last question here, given, uh, your, your, uh, portfolio company in the halo sector, you've got probably 20 to 30% vacant boxes, whether those are studio boxes, personal training centers, health clubs that may have gone through bankruptcy. Um, how do you look at it from a standpoint of, a private equity when you're pulling capital and you're saying, yeah, you know what? I could go and pick up 20 boxes right now or 20 locations. My CapEx cost is going to be de minimis versus what it is. My permitting is already there. But at the same time you say, Hey, look, I'm not out of the woods yet. Like I see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's not a train uh, with COVID, but like, I'm, I'm not going to become, I'm not going to supercharge a business that, that might 
fall into a territory of, of outgrowing itself. So how do you think about that? It's kind of the closing comments here. It's a great question. And it's a topic we spend a lot of time thinking about, frankly, every day. Uh, these days we are, we do have a, you know, a, uh, fitness, a studio fitness franchisee in the New York area in our portfolio. It's been a very, very challenging year. We're coming up on our one year anniversary of being closed, which is not a one year anniversary. Anybody wants to celebrate, but here we are. Uh, we are bullish on the sector, uh, returning, um, to health. Uh, within, you know, if you could, if you could snap your fingers and be, you know, and be sitting here a year from now, uh, we think people are out exercising in studios. We think the home fitness business has a, you know, certainly a greater presence in the world. Uh, but we think people are going back to studios, particularly in urban areas where there's, you know, that's where you go. Uh, people want the community. They want this socialization. They want the motivation. I mean, you know, yeah. we're all sitting here exercising in our gyms or our basements or our the corners of our apartments. Uh, and it's easy to get distracted, even for the most motivated of us. Now, we, given our bullish outlook, we are being opportunistic about picking up, um, picking up and taking advantage of opportunities we're seeing out there um, in a fairly uh, in a fairly aggressive way. We are ensuring to your point of we're not out of the woods yet because we sure aren't. We are ensuring that we are doing that, uh, maintaining the flexibility we need, um, in -hmm. those real estate arrangements, you know, with our operations going forward, ensuring we have the liquidity, uh, to make it through because we see the light at the end of the tunnel, as you said. Um, but, when we're going to get to that light is frankly still anybody's guess in my opinion. Um, and so we know we can be, you know, a year or even two or certainly two years from now, we can snap our fingers and we have a good idea where we're going to be. It's just a matter of making sure we have the flexibility to get there. Awesome. And in closing here, you got any uh, quotes that you live by or quotes that are, uh, People say, I'm sure Rob told this to me at some point. I have a great, I think, quote. So it was a long time ago, earlier in my career, I did a buyout of a company called Ready Ice. It was the largest packaged ice manufacturer uh, in the country. And the, the CEO was a guy named Bill Brick. He was a terrific guy. And... You know, we're going through our diligence and we're just, you know, running them through the ringer, you know, like we do. Mm-hmm. And at some point, and this is when a lot of stuff still took place in person and we're sitting around our big conference table, uh, you know, just grilling them. And he smashes his hands on the table. He says, guys, we freeze water. <laughs> You're not overcomplicate what we are talking about. <laughs> and it's amazing how often that quote, uh, I kind of repeat that back to myself when we get all caught up in, you know, our, in our analysis. Tech, our analysis. tech enabled SAS. At some point, it's not that yeah. complicated and you got to cut yeah. back to the fundamentals. We freeze water. All right. Well, classic. Freeze water. All right. Well, let's hope 2021 is going to unthaw 
the ice and we all get back to investing again in some semblance of normalcy. So I'll see you in person after the vaccines are uh, Amen. are widespread. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. It was great to, uh, to talk with thanks you. Thanks for having me, Pete. Pleasure. Awesome. As we continue to build our Halo Talks email notification database, want to offer you a free $10 instant gift card from our friends at Promotion Vault. Also to show you how easy it is to offer your members and prospects and clients the ability to get desired actions out of them and reward them in real time, go to halotalks.com, put your email address into the pop-up box, see how it works, get a free $10 gift card from us, and uh, keep listening and making everybody great.